You are listening to Lord Have Mercy, a podcast about God, sex, and the Bible. I'm your host, Crystal Cheatham. Stephanie Ryan Johnstone, so great to have you on uh, Lord Have Mercy today. Woo! So honored to be here. I am a big fan. What kind of work do you do you find yourself doing? Or can you tell me a bit about your history, your past, what brings you here? Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for many years, I've said that who I am is someone who stands in the question, who and how are we together mm-hmm. as lovers, as families, as communities, as citizens of the world, and who and how might we be together more bravely in light of our collective liberation. Mm. And sitting in that question has led me to do a lot of different kinds of work, but primarily working in in music as a choral composer and facilitator of community choirs, specifically queer and trans choirs. I have one in New York City. Also has led me to do a lot of sex education work. I have a sex and relationships coaching practice. I have a podcast called Sex for Smart People. I'm the content director of a new dating app for kinky people that hopes to punch stigma and shame in the face. And uh, I also do a a bunch of uh, unorthodox organizing and creative direct action a lot of times around queer and trans rights um, and other things. So you are even more busy than I am, it sounds like. (laughs) Seriously. We all have a lot on our plates. Yeah. Uh, I'm grateful and I I love all of the work I do and the collaborations that I'm in. I'm really floored at the the thought of you um, composing you know, when I, I went to Andrews University for my undergrad and I started as a music, um, as a, what is it called? Anyway, I was some, I was a music performance awesome. major, music yeah. performance major. And I was, and part of the curriculum was that I had to learn how to um, compose music, but I, it took me forever to learn how to read music. I suck at reading music. I can't do it. I can't play piano with both my hands. It's just impossible. I love the music <laughs> that you create. I was just listening before we record. Thank you. But that's all guitar. Like, I wrote that on the guitar, which is just like, play an A chord. You well, your voice is so beautiful, too. I think that everyone should go to your website right now. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, listen to that tab. But I think of, so I know that oh, we're going to talk yeah, about shame. I think about music and sex a lot, in, yeah? like along the same lines. What do you mean? Uh, well, I think um, uh, in terms of who and how we are together, I'm so, and we on a very broad scale, trying to broaden that understanding of we every day, um, I care so deeply about everyone feeling fully invited to be their full selves without shame, mm-hmm. that that is, and, and to shine their fullest light. And I think that that has to do, so so in, in music, um, being fully authentic and free uh, in singing and making music and creating music, um, I think takes a certain similar kind of courage um, and self-awareness as um, shining one's lights fully in terms of who they are and their sexuality and, and the ways we lean into pleasure. And I think that um, the uh, a lot of the intersecting and overlapping ways that people are marginalized, like would like to to silence and or dim 
I'm crossing metaphors all over the place, but silence and or dim dim lights on on both of those fronts. And so I'm I'm really passionate about about everybody being able to shine their lights fully on all of those fronts. And also, I think that that statement often gets misunderstood to sound like, oh, just be who you are, you individual. But I'm only interested in that in as much as like the more I shine my light, uh, the more I transcend my shame, the more I invite others around me to shine their lights, transcend their shame. Okay. So that's collective liberation. Yes. That's definitely a lot. And I just want to try and figure out and unpack the first part, which you're talking about um, shame around music. And one of the things that I truly love is group singing group singing where (laughs) everybody is singing and it doesn't matter like if you can hold a note or not it's just that's not what it's about what it's about is the thrill that you get when you are standing in a space with a bunch of people all being vulnerable and open and in and in most of my instances praying and uttering things of joy and and praise and positivity and that is just it's awesome and when I am when I am riding in a car with people and I start singing um I want to make sure that other people feel comfortable singing too it's like Mm. nobody's judging sing along too Mm -hmm. and so is that what you're talking about when you're talking about like this this shame that we all bear like I don't want you to see me (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Crystal, you are so speaking my language. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I often say in singing workshops that I do in the choirs that I lead and facilitate that I mm. don't believe there's good and bad singing. I believe Amen. that there's only more free or, or less free singing and that I always value boldness over precision mm. and that my favorite kind of choral singing is not um, you know, I have a lot of respect for the craft of like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, or all you know, and like this this correct way of singing this one dictated way. Mm-hmm. But I, um, my favorite sound is like people singing around a campfire yeah, and right. the feeling of singing together with yeah. others around a campfire and the way we amplify each other's voices, not just in loudness but in beauty and in power. Yeah. The deep kind of listening that singing together takes, mm-hmm. and the way of like the combination of really trusting your own specific unique voice texture and listening into others is um, is something I really believe in and is a practice I really believe in, even in the way of manifesting the world that I believe is needed in the it's, world. That I it's therapeutic. It, you know, uh, minimizes anxiety. You know, all of those things that you're talking about, especially what hit me was the texture part uh, because you know, singing in choirs where we're all supposed to get like the same timbre in our voice, you get really used to listening to the person next to you. But when you're singing mm-hmm. around a campfire, like it's all over the place, right? And so, yeah, I yeah. mean, you can choose to blend with the person next to you, or you can just choose to like mm-hmm. shout out your own. And it's, you know, well, what was your journey with that? And, and finding and trusting your unique singing texture? Blah. So I, <laughs> I, um, I grew up in a family where music was everything, just everybody sang. And my family uh, was huge to the point where uh, my grandfather was a minister, Christmas would come around, and we would have enough people in our entire family to sing the Handel's Messiah. And so we would do a Cheatham's Handel's Messiah. We would stand up, like Ooh. just fill, fill the bleachers and do the Handel's Messiah for Christmas every year right and so I then when I went to high school I started I was also in the choir and in college I was in the special touring choir geek 
nerd, call me what you will. Yay! But <laughs> I totally <laughs> love it. Geek is someone who is honest about what you like. I was so I'm a proud I was geek. So too. <laughs> I five to that because there were also um, there was like a gymnastics team that also toured, and so we were uh-huh. always, you know, trying to like battle back and forth to see who was the better touring. Anyway, um, I just I never got over that. So. Um, I went to I went to school so that I could get um, a degree in music, and it turned out that I just wasn't into the classical thing. I mm. loved singing opera and classical songs and art songs, but it just wasn't I wasn't into it. So mm. I grabbed a guitar and I started to play, and I started to play when I was seventeen, and that just kind of snowballed into writing songs, and mm. you know turned into. Um, standing at the front of the church with my guitar and and singing praise music and you know Christian rock <laughs> with uh-huh. all my other homies and uh-huh. yeah I mean that's I, that's that's where my songwriting really came from was learning those kinds of power chords and learning how to meditate through music and just yeah. feeling the glow of hundreds of voices all you know just <laughs> letting loose mm-hmm. and 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 being uncomfortable and comfortable together. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you? <laughs> In terms of singing and yeah. music? I too, I mean, my, my father is a, an evangelical pastor and mm-hmm. I grew up in church and singing in church and thriving and loving on that. And also, I think really having a sense that there are marks to hit when I sing. And there is a certain way of sounding that I could do. I could do well. I did musical theater. I was like the narrator in Joseph's Amazing Technical Dreamcoat. I could belt it out loud. I was high <laughs> and had a lot of fun with that. But I could get the sound that people wanted to hear without really being in touch with, with who I was or what was mm. authentic to me. Now I want to hear you that, sing. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a lot. I, I, mean, I, can, I can share. Um, but uh, the... Um, but the, the cost of that was I developed serious vocal modules late in high school, okay. um, which meant I couldn't sing for a long time and that had sucks. to start from square one and try to, uh, to find that um, way of being in my body and breath that really honored my specific instrument. That wasn't just about what those outside of me would want to hear, but that is like, here is who I am through my voice. And it's been a long, long journey. But just in the past couple years, I feel real solid. I mean, we're always growing, but I feel I do feel real solid and confident um, singing from my heart. And I, and I mm. still sometimes uh, get tired or lose my voice because everybody does sometimes. But yeah. I, um, I feel grateful to have kind of come out the other side and, and not have been silenced. But High to five. Snaps to that. Found my voice. And, and you know, vocal notes are like, that's some famous people shit. <laughs> that's some diva <laughs> shit. I don't know. Adele got nodes. Who else? Um, Julia oh, Andrews got nodes. While I was going through it, it only <laughs> felt like the world was crumbling around me. <laughs> well, you made it through. And I, I guess my next question is, how does that connect? Because I did bring you on here to talk about shame. And yeah. um, a lot of my listeners have either said to my face or they've written in talking about um, sexual shame. And I think that if you are coming from a hyper-religious or purity-centric background into queer life, me too, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you're trying to grapple with this thing called sexuality, not just orientation, but sexuality. It's really freaking hard 
because mm-hmm. there has not been a space made for us in this world. And yeah. so I brought you on because I know that that's your specialty and mm-hmm. you can handle it without giggling. I may giggle. But well, I love giggling too, but we don't have to giggle. <laughs> I'm, I may I may get a little self conscious, but uh, Alba's Alba's the worst with me anyway, so it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> I love that human. Um, whew, where do we begin? I don't know. Uh, why Why does music make you think of um, hmm. the problems with sexual shame? Hmm. Huh. I guess because with both um, singing authentically and living authentically in my queerness and my gender queerness and my celebration of my own sexual pleasure, it's just been a long, hard journey <laughs> and somewhat parallel. Um, that my my journey from shame to celebration has has been huge, and I think about shame around sex in. Um, two related but distinct directions. One, a shame around sexual pleasure, Mm. and Mm -hmm. another shame around core identity as it has to do with our sexuality. And I think for for some folks, those things are intertwined, and for some folks, they are not, uh, or not as much. And I think that in both cases, the... um, the weight of the load of shame like increases based on like the widespread societal oppression and marginalization. I feel like everybody, um, white cis dudes deal with, with shame. Absolutely. Um, and also I think the more, uh, to the margins, your identities are that then the, the, the heavier hitting that is. And I think that's important to acknowledge as, even as we're talking about personal stories. Yeah. I think as queer people, we're really used to, um, the preferences like of, of knowing that, okay, I like girls or I like boys, or I only like, um, genderqueer people, um, having shame about that because they're, I mean, it's everywhere. Just, you know, so real. Yeah. Yeah. But the second part is actually enjoying sex. Once you get to the point of, of engaging with a potential partner. Um, the other week, just, just as an, as a, an example, I was in DC and I was talking to one of my really cool friends and, um, she opened up about, um, being, being a virgin. And I mean, if you want to be a virgin, I'm really happy for you. Um, that's not a path that I've been been able to take, but if you feel Mm -hmm. called to that, then yeah, high five to you. But if Mm -hmm. you are a virgin or if you are scared of being sexually active because of shame, you feel about pleasure or feeling of being naked or asking someone out like Mm -hmm. I mean that's something that the queer um, spiritual community definitely needs to deal with because it always seems to go back to something you learned in church absolutely well I remember so distinctly um well so I um I was not even out to myself until my early 20s. I was not in touch with my my queerness um, or all of the ways in which I'm a sexual person. I'm a deeply kinky person. Um, and, Starting and an app about very, Yeah, <laughs> and, and just very sensual in general. And, and But I wasn't aware of that in myself until my early 20s. And um, so all through even high school and undergrad, um, undergrad at NYU even, like 
I couldn't be alone with myself naked in the presence of a mirror. Wow. That's how deeply ingrained the shame was for me. It was so real. Like, and I would, you know, getting out of the shower, I would cover with a towel. And I remember this one time, like the towel dropped and accidentally there I was with my body. And I like, and it, it like, it, it, it felt, um, so, so awful. Like e- even with my own body. And I think about, um, yeah, and 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 I know how not alone I am in that in that extremity, and that many folks have it even more extreme. Where did that come from? Where do you think? Or I don't know. I don't think I don't think <laughs> listeners know much about your history. Or even sure. Your history. Yeah. No problem. I wouldn't expect you to. Um, <laughs> um, I was raised uh, evangelical uh, Christian, specifically Assemblies of God, and. Um, it was really the faith of my parents until I was about 16 and a close friend of mine died suddenly of meningitis. Wow. And I, in my deep grief, asked all the big deep questions, read so much uh, philosophy and theology and came back around to, no, I I believe this for me. This is my faith. This is not just the faith of my parents. Yeah. And, um, and the same thing when I was 15 going on 16, where I was just like, you lost someone too, or you, I lost my dad, but it was still that thing of, this is not a faith of my father. This is my faith. I'm choosing to own this. And that when I was, that's so powerful right about that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like now's the moment on this podcast to come out as I came out to you, Crystal, yeah. as I don't identify as a Christian currently, mm-hmm. I've, I have deep respect for, for followers of Jesus who are not engaged with that in a way that perpetuates Christian supremacy, which yeah. I know there are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say I'm a person of faith against all odds in humanity and that I'm a fundamentalist about our collective liberation. I, and I do a lot it. of interfaith <laughs> activism and I'm a deep believer in claiming spirit in the way that that looks different for everybody. But so, but um, back to the question of where do I think that that came yeah. from? Like not even, it wasn't even to the point of like having sex with another person or being naked with another person, but even just around my body. Um it's hard to put a finger on. And I think that's why that is something that's so hard to talk about because it's not like I was ever told explicitly your body is dirty. Don't look at yourself naked. There's no Bible verse of thou shalt not look at thyself naked in the mirror. And no, yet I think yeah. this, this culture, we were talking about purity culture before. And, and I remember reading this book, lady in waiting, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have also read. Wow. Um, just about how, you know, saving, you know, as people who are assigned female, um, you know, saving yourself, um, like as a gift for, you know, to be found by future husband. Yeah. And, um, and crumple your flower. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So thinking like of, of, you know, it's interesting thinking of myself as so pure and so dirty all at once. Um, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how those things get. And I, I think, I'm so grateful to you, Crystal, for the uh, opportunity for this conversation. I, I agree. I, I, I really appreciate um, you holding space. I think that uh, talking about sex in a w- and and saying it's okay, like like we like we have sexualities, however yeah. we feel about about sex or not, yeah. whether we're asexual or very sexual or anywhere in between, yeah. and that um, that that sharing these stories and, and talking is, is a big part of it. And I think that actually that my lack of access to any talking mm. about sex or bodies at yeah. all, or when it was talked about, you know, I remember, I remember like even sex ed in high school, just this air of very, um, 
uh, of this this era of taboo that's again hard to put a finger on or like when I was I remember when I was four years old and like accidentally grabbed my cousin's boob like <laughs> and just like out of like your shirt is shiny <laughs> like I love your shirt like it was that and then I remember the whole room like the hush over the whole room and like me oh just getting gosh. the message that like there's something about bodies that we just don't talk about and that is is off the table that's and and I, again, I know I'm not alone in that. And, and I also want to keep saying like that on a widespread level, like, like, like there's a reason why, uh, in, I'm in more cases than this, but specifically I'm thinking of with act up in the seventies saying silence equals death. Like, yeah, this, that's what, what I'm we're at talking right now. about has, yeah, has very, had very real ramifications for my personal emotional life. I know folks who were close to me attempted suicide for having desires that they felt were outside of the norm. My heart is heavy with that. And my heart is also really heavy for the way that these things, even though it can seem so like, oh, just this little, oh, this feeling of shame or that, um, that, that actually does reverberate so far, so far outward. Sex itself is, is awkward. It's super awkward. And it's not like it is in the movies where it's like super mm -hmm. sensual and you're just like transported mm -hmm. to this other world where everything you're doing is right. And mm -hmm. it involves a lot more conversation than TV lets on, right? Oh, and so, yeah. Yeah. And TV, you have a script. Yes. And a director. Producers and people saying <laughs> and the lighting's not right. Takes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so glad you spoke about that. But like uh, one of the main values of the app that I am content directing is communication yes. increases sexiness, mm, which does. is a thing that shouldn't be a radical idea, but often is. A lot of people are saying, oh, you're killing the moment. Oh, we can just be like those scripted folks yeah. on, on TV. But I want to ask you about your app, but first I want to know, like, okay, so sex is awkward. It's like your bodies are all weird. And nobody's body yeah. looks like it's supposed to, or what you think it's supposed to, at least of all your own. Um, Which how, I think is exciting. That, like, how awkward <laughs> and how much there is to navigate. I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to see everyone naked, just so everyone, every listener knows. I am hoping to see you naked. Um, <laughs> ha ha ha, just playing. Ha. Um, so, so what I want, I want to know is how did you, how did you get from being such a quote unquote prude to, mm. I mean, like you couldn't even see yourself naked to the point where you are excited about being naked and excited about being kinky and now building an app about being kinky. Like how to invite others into transcending shame to whatever extent that's and educating their, about their it. way of doing it. Mm -hmm. How, how did you make that, that, and is that a, is, and is it a path that listeners can follow if they have all this shame? Mm -hmm. Whew, uh, I don't think that anybody's path is anyone that anyone else can or should follow. I don't think that anyone <laughs> should Give us a how to. Give us a one, two, three. Um, for, I can share how me, how, how this unfolded. Um, I, for me, at a time when my first sexual experiences in my early 20s, I had a sense that the sky should be falling down on me. Like, I should, why is God not smiting me right now? Or like, where is the whale that's going to come swallow me? Um, and my actual experience of my first sexual experiences, it was like, whoa, I feel so respected, so mm. free, so honored, 
so good <laughs> in all the ways. And I was very lucky, very, very lucky. I know that's not the case with everybody's first sexual experiences, but that, that mine were like incredibly respectful and, and with someone who was so down with communication and, How did you um, get over that hump that. though? Because the hump is like mm -hmm. that, that, okay, okay, fine. I got somebody's number. Fine. I'm alone in somebody's house with them. But like, how did you get over that, that hump of, the reel of tape that's playing in your head that's saying, shame, 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 shame. What you're doing is wrong. You'll never be able to go back from this. And then all of the, all of mm. the rhetoric that you're just, that is going on in the back of your head. Well, it certainly wasn't in like one fell swoop. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big, long journey. Um, I mean, that moment where I allowed myself to have my first sexual experiences wasn't a big period of questioning my faith. Mm -hmm. And even for a while, letting go of faith altogether, mm -hmm. which I know does not have to be the case in yeah. order to to transcend shame. For me, those things were connected, um, but I know that that is definitely not the case for everybody. For me, that came kind of on the heels of um, turning down a marriage proposal of somebody that we had what? courted for about seven years and hadn't even kissed, but just knew that God had picked each other out for the other and this is the thing like I'll never so I was going to visit him um just before studying abroad which studying abroad is where I had my first sexual experiences uh it's cliche and true and happened you know and um but I I was going down and we were like going to talk about how we were going to get engaged that following that upcoming Christmas this was the summer and I remember feeling so excited to see him like this is God's plan this is the path and then he was there with flowers at the train station and I was excited up until the moment I got off. And then I stepped off the train and I'll never forget this. And it was like my whole, my, my stomach dropped out from under me and my whole body was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I still hung out that weekend and just like kind of felt weird and like disconnected. But it's like my, my body knew things about me that I was not honoring. And that's the part that's true regardless of what I believe about Christianity or not. My body was screaming that something about this is not the path. Um, and this person is a wonderful person and I still feel terrible that I that his emotions were the casualty of, of my uh, my my journey and my my learning, um, but so it was on the heels of that very kind of like emotional off kilterness and wondering what that was in my body that mm. I I like was having just so many questions and sitting in so many questions that created the kind of pause that I needed um, in order to. Um, after many, many times of hanging out with one person, finally, <laughs> finally, um, for me, it was very liberating to, to finally make out. And then I was like naked with somebody and being like, whoa, how, how is this, how is this so joyful? <laughs> I was right? told this isn't supposed to be, but this is really whole and really joyful. And, and then still was a very long journey. Um, yeah. Then I was in, I had my first like partnership, partnership that involved some elements of sex. Um, and for about a year after that, I would cry every time we were sexual at all or any time I felt pleasure. Um, and this partner was so, so deeply wonderful and patient. We were together for six years and 
And um, this was also before I was totally on to my queerness. So this is also a cis dude who is one of the best people I know um, mm. and who was so patient and gentle and kind. And like, there was never any pressure. Like I wanted to engage sexually. And also there was all, there were all of these layers and, and just over time with this very, very loving, caring person um, worked through some of that shit. And, and so how did I get to be the point where I like speak about this publicly and have a coaching practice and starting a kinky yeah. dating app um, in that relationship with this wonderful person, Dave McGee, we speak publicly. We actually have a, had a podcast together cool. um, that Reverend Sex was just on. Um, check it out. And uh, we also asked, we also early on in our relationship, we're just asking deep questions about who and how do we want to be together. And he also is a pastor's kid and it's really suspicious of any capital S shoulds. And so we mm. thought we invented ethical non-monogamy, which we certainly didn't. <laughs> but at the time we didn't know anybody else who was really practicing that. So we also just found our way into this beautiful ethically non-monogamous relationship that shifted shape over the years in, in many different ways and um and because we were both on this journey um away from sexual shame and toward different models of what family and care and love can look like that do fall outside of capital s should and capital n norm mm -hmm. um we were very vocal about this and lots of people in our lives uh kind of flagged me and us as somebody who it feels safe to talk to about things that doesn't often feel safe to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where like five or 10 people a week were reaching out to me, even people I didn't wow. know, just like to talk about queerness, to talk about sex. And I hadn't set out to become a sex educator. Um, but uh, this this volume kept up for so long that I, I had to listen for like, whoa, I think I have some responsibility here. Like I want to take really seriously that I'm flagged as somebody that, that it feels safe to talk to about these things. And, and I began to feel it as a kind of calling. And also I needed to create some boundaries at some point because I, I wish to be endlessly generous with uh, with all that I've learned. But so I I did a bunch of workshops and classes. Re every book that I read was about sex and sexuality for about four or five years um, and collective liberation and, and feminism and, and intersectionality and all of that and as it relates to each other and created my podcast to be a free resource um, yeah. to those who are coming to me and it's created my coaching practice, which has always had a sliding scale, um, but in which um, and just have kept learning and growing as I go. That's amazing. This uh, another the other layer of my journey, which I'll share in brief, like has to do with um, understanding sex positivity in, a, in an increasingly nuanced way. Mm -hmm. um, I think sex positivity as a term was important in naming that our cult we're in a culture that is sex negative and pleasure negative. Um, and also sex positivity often gets misrepresented as like all the sex all the time is definitely better, which is so clearly not the case or can misrepresent that like as if transcending shame or as if like being a sexual person like is uncomplicated and, and doesn't necessarily acknowledge um, the complexity of, of trauma and and triggers and being queer in a in a culture that that doesn't fully celebrate that um and so 
I like to say as an alternative to sex positivity, even though I'm grateful that the term was important in terms of naming sex positivity in opposition to sex negativity, I like saying sexuality from a place of wholeness Mm -hmm. and that that is the radical notion that we can be all of who we are without shame. And that wholeness is something that gets to be radically self-determined by every individual. And so that is the jump off point for both the coaching practice and the app, which I am excited to talk about. It is called Kinked In. Uh-huh. And you can go to trykinkedin.com um, to read more and to sign up to know when we are releasing in your city. Our core tenets are it's not just you mm. um, and uh, that uh, it's okay to want what you want and communication increases sexiness. And yeah. another way that I'm, and I'm only invested in building this app in as much as I believe that it's a part of the wider culture shifts I'd like to see, which yeah. have to do with what I just said, and also with who is this app accountable to? Like there hasn't been uh, many dating apps that have been have done well that are really taking into consideration those beyond like white cis heteronormative perspectives. I think some some apps that are out there have definitely grown in that way. Mm-hmm. We have an advisory board of 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 people from all different variety of of backgrounds and experiences and identities um, wanting from square one to be building this in conversation with and an, an accountable to folks with identities and experiences and backgrounds beyond our own and also thinking about community accountability not just in like minimizing harm you know when when uh, you know how harm is is heard and handled um, not just about minimizing liability, but about like, who are we as a community and what are our values and really getting out in front of that. And so um, that's something that like really keeps me going and building this app, even in these early stages where, uh, where, as you know, it (laughs) takes a lot of of digging in and a lot of, um, but um, that, but trykington.com, the more people who sign up to hear about us, the faster that we can fully and quickly uh, build this thing to what we we know it can be. And kink is defined in a very wide sense. Kink uh-huh. as as anything beyond like beyond like missionary positions, cis heteronormative yeah. sex. I really um, like the name. I think it's really clever. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, what are what can you say to listeners who are um, having problems with shame or like what, what do you have any mm-hmm. final advice for, for people trying mm-hmm. to, you know, just bridge the gap, move forward, um, mm-hmm. take the hurdle. One, <clears throat> yeah. I hear you. That is so real. Mm-hmm. It is not just you. You are not alone in what you are feeling. And you are not feeling the way you're feeling because of some kind of brokenness in you. I believe that that any version of this you're feeling with what, what you're feeling and you're grappling with what you're grappling with because the, the stories that are most uh, loud in mainstream culture are not set up to welcome who you fully are. Yeah. And, and especially in the States, I think it's just so, e- we're so easily labeled like a, either a slut or a prude. And to find mm. the, the wholeness and the humanity of just who we are um, that transcends those extremes 
um, is not easy, but is possible. And I don't know what I don't have. I want to be not too quick to dish out capital A advice, because I think the whole point of this is we are all so many splendored in who we are. And I think that earlier me, and again, I'm not done with this journey. I am still on it. I've been on it and I've grown a lot and I'm still growing and we all are. Um, And I think that I'm just trying to think of what I would have loved to hear like 10 years ago. And I think the main thing is like, like you're, you're not alone in how you're feeling like you are your many splendored self and you are not alone. And I feel like any, any forum, and this is going to be different for everybody. It's, uh, but any forum that you can find to, to ask or share, um, maybe it's one close friend, maybe it's a whole community, but the, but, but I really feel like in transcending shame, we are so all in this together and um, and the more we can reach out when we're safe to do so, which I know not everybody is, but um, but the more we can, um, I think the stronger we all are. Thank you. Yeah, can I ask you, Crystal, what you what advice you would give about shame? Yeah. Hmm. I think what you said is very important that we're not alone in this, and I think. Part of the problem is that in our shame, we don't, we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, which is what we're trying to do right now. But um, I think that anybody listening to this podcast, I mean, needs to know that the next step is to go and find somebody to talk about it and, mm-hmm. you know, be awkward about it and mm-hmm. find, a, find a way to laugh about it and, mm-hmm. you know, go a step further and... Um, recall some of the things that uh, Reverend Alba talked about, um, about sex in the Bible and, and mm-hmm. realize that like, <laughs> you really need to take a moment and, and, and connect with your body and connect with your spirituality so that it's not something that sneaks up behind you and surprises you when you are in a situation yes. that is sexual. Yes. Um, yeah, just get fucking comfortable. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think that's, a really big step. Yeah. <sighs> Where can people um, find out more about you? Thank you for asking. Um, StephanieRyanJohnstone.com has links to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two things within that, TryKington.com. And then my coaching practice is SexAndRelationshipsCoaching.com. Uh, sex Woohoo! And um, for all my listeners, I just want you to know that um, SRJ has agreed to be one of the authors on the app. <laughs> so you will be seeing some uh, some kinky, explicit meditations um, when that does launch. So we're all there together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you, thank so, you much. so much, Crystal. Such thank an honor you. to be in conversation with you. And thank you so much for being who you are and doing all that you you're too. doing and building all thank that you're building. You. It's that time of the show again, where you listeners get to call in and ask questions to Rev Sex. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's First Timothy one through nine, or one nine through ten, um, and this is the New International Version. It reads: We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful 
the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. I have so many questions when I read this because immediately I think, um, it says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous. So what's the law? <laughs> Yeah, who is the talk, righteous? Who is this talking, talking about? about? Yeah. yeah. Um, if this were being used to attack me, I would say, well, that's really interesting. Uh, let's uh, turn the page, a couple more pages maybe, to chapter 6. And so chap- 1 Timothy, same book, chapter 6, five chapters later, uh, verse 1 starts with, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. So if we're using a text uh, that condemns homosexuality and yet not lifting up the enforcement and reinforcement of slavery just a few chapters later, then that's a particular kind of inconsistency that I will not abide. So if we're going to say 1 Timothy, it is scripture, it is our guide, then we are saying, oh, we will condemn homosexuality and we will affirm slavery and we can just keep it moving. I don't know any Christians who do that. So I'm not willing to entertain an argument that says, well, yes, chapter one is absolutely right, but chapter six, we can just let that one slide. So I yeah. I have a real, for me, consistency is one of the most important pieces of a theology that you're going to use, especially if you're using it to harm rather than uplift others. Um, so those are all different kinds of ways to come at the same thing. I'm still confused, though. Like, what does it mean when it says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels? So the law isn't made for people who are already good. It's made for people who are bad. Well, that's a great question. And I think that it depends on... I think it depends on who the laws are made for, uh, to be quite honest. When we live in a society where it wasn't but 100 years ago that it was illegal for two people of different races to get married, Mm -hmm. where we live in a society where it wasn't but a couple years ago since it was um, legal for people of the same assigned sex to get married, when we live in a place where it used to be illegal for people of color to drink out of water fountains and where women didn't have voting rights, when we start talking about laws and what they were made for, I feel really, um, really hesitant because I want to start asking other questions about whose yeah. law are you talking about and what law in specific and who created those laws and in whose image are those laws created because I have seen laws used much more to harm um, and to maintain the status quo. And so if the status quo is white supremacy and segregation um, or imperialism or colonization, then my experience is, yes, it's, it's about keeping people in line. If we're talking about sacred law, if this is a reference back to like Old Testament kind of law, um, I think it is very true that when we see in uh, some of the um, 
Hebrew Bible text where where we have God mandating, you know, do not make idols that you can pretty much guarantee that's because people were worshiping idols. And when you see all these commandments coming down um, and assigned to God, that it's because they are actively happening. Um, and so, yes, if it's about maintaining the status quo, sure. But my question is like, okay, well, if the status quo includes women being property, if it includes, you know, children being able to be sold and bought, um, if it includes slaying your enemy and all of the living things and scorching the land, like at what, there's a little bit more that, that goes into that rather than just like the law was meant for those who break it. Um, I think that depends on who's in power and what they're trying to do with their power. Yeah, I don't know. This verse is very suspect. I hate, I also hate that they, I mean, we've established that the word homosexual is something that was invented and probably not in the original text, right? And But I hate that those who um, decided to throw in homosexuality threw it in along with, like, murderers <laughs> and um, slave traders and liars and perjurers. And it's like, that, that right there is why in... Um, in school, like university policy books, they will say that it's bad. I mean, like they, they will throw in, um, homosexual right along with all of the other horrible things that you could be like a pedophile, you know? And it's just like, when, where do you get off saying that, you know, just because you don't agree with being gay, that, you know, somehow it's along the same lines as being like a criminal, <laughs> I, right. I, I, don't well, I mean, even what is a criminal, right? Because criminal changes dramatically over time. Yeah. Um, what is criminalized behavior in some places is seen as totally acceptable in others. And so, so if we're going back, like, for example, um, when we're talking about fornicators, right? It's like, well, if we equated having sex as a culture, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about just the law, but as a culture, if we equated sex outside of marriage, which includes things like having sex with someone who's not your spouse, cheating on people, those kinds of things with homosexuality. Those are not, uh, those are not punishable in the same ways. I've never yet heard of someone losing their job because they had mm. sex outside of marriage. Or they example. divorced their wife. Or, or they divorced their wife. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a, it's about that consistent application of belief. And I do believe that there are some very devoted Christians who believe that having um, sex or being married to someone of the same sex is equated with adultery and very, live very consistently those values across the board. But if we're talking about law um, and biblical law in particular, I'm thinking about that we get back to this question of biblical marriage. Because, you know, for folks, some folks who say, like, it is our call to be celibate if we are gay and Christian, um, which I do not believe. But I, no, but there's a crazy. there's a widespread. Well, I think it's faith. It's an it's an intent to be faithful. But I do think that there is something that is very important about recognizing the ways that um, biblical marriage I hear that so often from the religious right around like biblical we support biblical marriage biblical marriage biblical marriage 
And the truth of the matter is, is that there are multiple, multiple formulations of biblical marriage. So, for example, we have Leverite marriage, which is the time when if a man dies without having a son, a child to like continue the name on. His brother has to step in. Then his brother has to step in and marry his wife, even if she's a second or third or 16th wife. And has to sleep with her. And make and, a baby. And make a baby. And when she has that baby, that baby takes the name of her dead husband rather than the person who literally fathered it. And it is a kind of stopgap measure to make sure that the lines are continued in their appropriate patriarchal structure. But we don't talk about that as part of like biblical marriage. We don't talk about we have the beloved of God, David, who has so many wives and Solomon who has so many wives and so many concubines read slave read harem read you know we have some of our founding fathers right we have Sarah and Abraham who are making trying to make a baby and that doesn't happen and then we have Hagar who comes along as Sarah's slave as her handmaid who Abraham impregnates at Sarah's bequest and that is never, Hagar isn't one of the people that we mention as one of our foremothers, right? Because God then comes back and, and, and supposedly um, makes sure that Sarah has the actual legitimate heir. But, but those are two wives. Um, and so there is this concubine slash slave master uh, kind of marriage and relationship that happens that is absolutely biblical. We have multiple marriages um, like Jacob, who marries both sisters, Ugh, right? Rachel right. and Leah. So there's a lot, there's a lot in terms of um, what is quote-unquote biblical marriage. Yeah. So to lift up this idea that it is forever, since Adam and Eve been one man and one woman, I'm like, okay, so if there was just Adam and Eve, then what about the next generation? Who did their children sleep with to procreate? Did God, like magically impregnate the daughters of Adam and Eve to have, like, what do you do with that? There is a consistency of logic that must be followed if you're going to proclaim biblical marriage. You have to at least be consistent across the board and then support multiple spouses of a person or um, Leverite kind of marriage. I mean, there's just... Okay, so it's a you've, lot. You've, po- you've poked a lot of holes in this um, verse that people usually use to just hit gay people over the head with. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the rest of the Bible confirms that, you know, this, this Timothy verse doesn't quite hold water, then what, what are we to understand or believe about this verse? Like, what the hell's it talking about? If it's not saying that, if, if, it is so easily contradicted by other parts of the Bible. Oh, beloved. I think there's something... We don't have to go into it if you don't want to, but... No, it's actually really simple, but it's really hard to do, which is this idea that we have to hold on to every single verse in the Bible as equally important and equally powerful Mm. is a really harmful one. It gets us really wrapped up in the wrong... It's a hard thing to do, too. Yeah! gets us really wrapped up in the heart and like the wrong questions right and so for me when I'm thinking about the Bible it's important to understand some history about the Bible around you know it isn't until 
a good 40, 50 years after Jesus died that any of the books that say Jesus said get actually written down. And in a time where there were no podcasts, there were no video recorders, there were no, like, smartphones, you know, where scribes is what somebody wrote on paper who happened to be around. We have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nobody there had, like pen and paper recording Jesus' prayer, right? We It is a very um, oral tradition that is yeah. meant to invoke deep connection and creative engagement with something that is bigger than we can know and understand. And so yeah. when we start drilling into what does this exact word and that exact word mean, rather than taking the scripture and saying, like, what are my morals and my ethics around who God is? Is God a God of love? Is God a God of relationality, a God of life, a God of abundance? Is is what we get from this book a God that is trying to judge us? Or is what we get from this book a God that is trying like hell to save us from all kinds of terrible yeah. possibilities? And when we get to that, it gives us a lens or a measuring stick, a rubric, if you will, to be like, how do I take this verse? Do I take this verse where does it fit in the lens of me looking for access to the divine, access to life, access to hope and abundance and being what the world needs, my authenticity, helping others? Does this help or harm that? Does it fit into that mold or not? And I think that that's what Christians do when they throw out verses about slavery. We have now come to a place in our collective understanding where yeah. we understand that one human having ownership of another human's body against their will is absolutely wrong, no matter what the Bible says, right? And so we can look at that and say our ethics and morals do not hold that. And we can let it go and move on to the next thing. We don't spend every Sunday or every Wednesday grappling deeply with what the fuck do we do with this Bible that says slavery is wrong? So why do we spend so much intensity and so much of our lives devoted to what do we do with where the Bible says that homosexuality is fill in the blank, criminal or mm. wrong or an abomination? I mean, it took a really long time for us to figure out that slavery was wrong. And it's taking us a really long time to figure out that um, homosexuality is not wrong. And like what I'm hearing from this conversation uh, is that, you know, in order to move forward as a, uh, as a collective society, it's... It's, uh, it's, it's three parts of coming together. One is the Bible, one is God, and the other is us. Like we, <laughs> but it's also us one by one, you know? Mm -hmm. One by one, we have to figure it out, and then we have to come together in groups and say, yes, this is what we believe, and then those groups get larger and larger, and they find other groups, and then finally, it's just, it's a pretty well-known fact that, you know, this one thing that we have all figured out with our hearts and with God and with the Bible is truth. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I guess I guess that's why conversations like this are important. Conversations like the ones we have at GCN are important. I know a lot of people say that it's not right that um, GCN has side A and side B conversations. But, you know, we're we're all on a journey, you know, and we're all trying trying to get there. And it would be um, it would be ridiculous for me to say, no, you have to be where I am because, you know, I had this I have this, this and this. It's like we really do have to let everyone else just, like, fucking get there. Well, and we have to do our best to share what we know. Exactly. And what I think is... Challenge that, each other. Yeah. And for me, it, if there is one thing that is clear is that God is connected with life. That God is perpetually and persistently, doggedly after 
life and life abundant for all of creation. And if that is our rubric, then we are called to live in accordance with that, right? Like, and how does that, how does that fit? And that is the lens. That is the, the ethic that I read through the Bible. And there are things that I say, absolutely not. And there are things I say, oh my gosh, that was so life-giving and yes to that. And you know, the Methodist, I'm not Methodist. a lot more power than I ever really thought about. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the Methodist, I'm not Methodist. And when I was younger, I thought they were going to hell as a Southern Baptist, but the Methodists (laughs) have some really interesting stuff. And one of the things that they've taught me is this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley was one of the forefathers Mm -hmm. and whatever. Um, and it's this idea that there are four ways to understanding revelation or God and God's mm-hmm. experience. And one is scripture. And it is really important and it is always going to be relevant and important to Christians. And therefore, we absolutely have to grapple with it. The second one is tradition and the church and what we've learned through from the beginning when Christians were an underground, illicit group of people who were often criminalized because of their belief and their refusal to acquiesce to a Roman empire. Um, The other two get left behind, and I think they're super important for us as Christians to lift back up. And one of those is reason, which is what comes out for me around consistency. It is is unreasonable to take chapter one, but not take chapter six. Cheers. Um, And the last one is experience. And that if God is alive and God is still speaking, then God is alive and speaking through our lives and through our experiences. And that those are valid understandings and revelations to understand our relationality to God. And so that is the last one in which I feel like we understand testimonies as evangelicals to be very important. And yet we seem to be able to dismiss them whenever they are not in alignment with what our own lived experience is. And I think that happens over and over again with LGBTQ people. So I just want to encourage folks that your testimony matters. Your lived experience matters. Your authenticity absolutely is critical and matters. And there are more than one way. It's not just scripture. There are actually many ways to understand the revelation of the divine because it's all around us. And even Mm. Paul says, shame on you if you say you didn't know the creator when the entire Mm. world around you is filled with the creator's handiwork. Amen. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Eight cheers. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Yeah, no, celebrate that. It is, yeah. Okay, bye.